Hello? Hello? Excuse me, I think we're going to get started with our panel. I'm Eric Jaffe. I'm the uh, chairman of the Free Speech and Election Law Practice Group at the Federalist Society. And I'm uh, pleased to sort of present and start off our panel today on the, uh, the Voting Rights Act, uh, re-examining the Voting Rights Act. As most of you probably know, it's uh, various sections of the Voting Rights Act are up for renewal, and uh, that and some proposed amendments to the Act have sparked quite a bit of debate about the uh, effectiveness, the purposes, the, the proper interpretation of the Act. Today we're going to have four panelists who I'll introduce in a moment. I'm just going to give you guys a quick and dirty summary of certain sections of the Voting Rights Act that I think they'll all be discussing or touching upon, either in their main comments or in their responses to questions. Um, the, the key sections of the Voting Rights Act that uh, are sort of going to be talked about today are Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which is basically the anti-discrimination provision, which provides that no voting qualification, standard, practice, or procedure which results in a denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen of the United States to vote on account of race or color or membership in a language minority group uh, is lawful. Straight up anti-discrimination, don't discriminate in voting issues uh, on account of race, uh, color, or language. That, uh, that is not up for renewal. That will stay as it is, though it uh, has periodically sparked controversy, particularly in sort of how one goes about proving whether there has been discrimination on account of race, color, or language. Uh, and I think at least some of our panelists will touch upon that a bit. Uh, the, other, the next section of the Voting Rights Act, which uh, I think will get much more consideration, are Sections 4 and 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Sections 4 and 5 together set up the system that is known as the preclearance system. So for a variety of states that had certain discriminatory voting practices back uh, in the 60s and early 70s, uh, for those states to enact new voting practices or practices, procedures, or rules or qualifications, those states need to get what's called preclearance. They either need to get the attorney general to sign off and say okay, or they need to get a district court, a three-judge district court, to say okay. Um, the key points about sections four and five, it seems to me, are that the standards for which states are covered and hence need preclearance and which states are not covered and hence merely have to comply with section two uh, are based upon facts as they existed in 1964, 1968, or 1972. And there's been uh, a decent amount of controversy and some proposed amendments suggesting that 30- and 40-year-old facts are really not a proper basis for current preclearance requirements and that perhaps those dates should be moved closer to the present time. Uh, the final section of the Voting Rights Act that I think we will have a decent amount of discussion on today is uh, referred to generally, Section 203, it's referred to generally as the language minorities provision which basically extends to language minorities certain of the protections uh, that were uh, provided for race and color, but in particular requires that under certain circumstances where there are a certain percentage of a discrete language minority group within a political jurisdiction or more than 10,000 members of a particular language group within a jurisdiction, voting materials of all sorts must be provided not merely in English, but also in the language of that language minority group. And this of course, has uh, tapped into all the controversy that has often swirled around things like bilingual education, English only, uh, those kinds of fights. And um, 
once again has sort of been the subject, uh, if I remember my NPR uh, correctly, uh, the subject of a proposed amendment. So uh, that's really all I'm going to say about it. I'm not going to get into the fight. Rather, I'm going to let the panelists do that. Uh, but that should be the basic background that should help you sort of understand what they talk about when they say Section 2, which is the anti-discrimination stuff, Section 4 and 5, which is preclearance, and Section 203, which is the language minority multilingual uh, voting materials sections. So on our panel today, I'm going to introduce them all, and then I'll let them talk without further interruption. Uh, to begin with, we'll have Professor Daniel Tokaji. Uh, he's an assistant professor of law at Ohio State's Moritz College of Law. Uh, he has a particular expertise in the areas of election law and civil rights, among others that are not immediately relevant to today's panel. But he's more expert than that, I assure you. Uh, he's a widely published scholar in the voting rights area with uh, multiple articles, including a variety of recent articles on electronic voting. Uh, he's the author of the Equal Vote blog, which covers voting rights issues. Prior to becoming professor of law, uh, Professor Takaji held various positions at the ACLU, including eight years as a staff member where he litigated issues of this sort, and he's currently on the board of directors of the Ohio, uh, the Ohio chapter of the ACLU. Um, other sort of notable roles in his past was he served uh, various posts with Common Cause, both nationally and locally, uh, and he continues to be involved as counsel in various uh, voting rights litigation. Uh, Professor Takaji graduated from Harvard undergrad, Yale Law, and clerked for Judge Reinhardt on the Ninth Circuit, uh, someone who I'm sure everyone in this audience is painfully familiar with, <laughs> though I like the guy. <laughs> so there you go. Um, Dr. Abigail Thernstrom. Uh, is the co-chair of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights and a noted, uh, can I say this, uh, bomb thrower and, and, and other otherwise uh, troublemaker? Is that fair? I think you're the one who told me that characterization. I, I did. I didn't expect it to be publicly. Well, <laughs> bomb throwing only in the best sense of the phrase. Um, she's, also, she's also a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute uh, up in New York. Uh, she's a member of the Massachusetts Board of Education, uh, and of course much of her writing deals with race and education as well. Um, she's on the Board of Advisors of the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, which uh, as many of you may know is sort of tasked with helping implement various election laws, uh, including particularly the Help America Votes, Vote Act. Uh, which was passed in the wake of the 2000 elections. Uh, Dr. Thernstrom is also an award-winning author on numerous race issues, and she and her husband have published or edited numerous books and other materials uh, on these types of issues. Finally, she's a board member of the Center for Equal, um, for Equal Opportunity, which I'll get back to in a minute, and for the Institute of Justice. She received her PhD from the Department of Government at Harvard University. Our next speaker after that will be Julie Fernandez. She's a senior policy analyst and special counsel at the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights and the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights Education Fund. Um, she was formerly at DOJ, where she was a trial attorney in the Civil Rights Division, counsel to the assistant AG for Civil Rights, and, and then at the White House briefly for, as a special assistant to President Clinton on the White House Domestic Domestic Policy Council, dealing with issues of civil rights and race relations, as well as immigration, which, uh, of course, all three of which are relevant here, given the, both the civil rights issues and the language issues involved. Um, Ms. Fernandez was also a fellow at the National Legal Department of the ACLU. Uh, she received her, her undergraduate and law degrees from the University of Chicago and clerked for Judge Diane Wood on the Seventh Circuit. 
finally, we have um, Linda Chavez, who is the chairman of the Center for Equal Opportunity, uh, on which uh, Dr. Thornstrom is a board member. Um, she is a syndicated columnist published widely around the nation on issues of race and immigration. Uh, she's a political analyst for Fox News, again, on similar issues. She's held numerous appointed positions in the government, uh, including as chairman of the National Commission on um, Migrant Education on the White House. She was White House Director of, 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 of uh, White House Director for Public Liaison. I'm speaking too quickly for my own good. Um, she was staff director for the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, and she is the U she was the U.S. expert to the U.N. Subcommission on the Prevention of Discrimination and Protection of Minorities. Uh, all of those qualifications, obviously, quite relevant to today's discussion. Um, other qualifications that you, you will probably have recall or have heard of is she was President Bush's nominee for Secretary of Labor in 2001, a controversial nomination that I think uh, many of us were on various and sundry sides of, I think most in this room on one particular side of that fight. Um, she was the Republican nominee for Senator from Maryland. Um, she's had previous positions as well at the American Federation of Teachers, um, and she has continuing involvement in various political activities, PACs and such, uh, in Republican politics. She received her undergraduate degree from the University of Colorado. So without further ado, I will leave it now to the speakers. Uh, we begin with uh, Professor Takaji. Well, thank you so much. It's, it's really a pleasure and an honor to be here, and um, I, especially because I, I'm, a, I guess you could say, a relative newcomer to this area. Most of my research is focused on issues of election reform, election administration. Uh, so it's a particular honor to be a pan on, on this panel um, with such a distinguished group, including Dr. Thernstrom, who although, as, as you'll see, I think we, we, disagree, we disagree quite sharply on some issues, I have enormous respect for the important work and influential work that she has done in this area. Um, what I'd like to start with, you heard the, the basic analysis of the Voting Rights Act and the various sections of it. Um, there are two that I'm going to be talking about. Section 5, which has to do with preclearance of changes by certain covered jurisdictions, and Section 203, the language assistance provisions. But back up for a second. There are two basic things that the Voting Rights Act does, as I see it. The first is to protect rights of participation, the ability of every citizen to vote, uh, to make an informed choice and to have that vote counted. The second is protecting rights of representation, issues that commonly go under the heading of vote dilution. And I, I think it's really on this second point, rights of representation, where the most serious and, to my mind, um, legitimate disagree disagreements, differences of opinion lie. And that mostly has to do with Section 5 and Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. I'm not going to talk very much about Section 2 in my opening remarks. I'm going to focus mainly here on Section 5 because Section 2 is not among the provisions that expires in 2007 and therefore is up for reauthorization right now. Um, as was mentioned a few moments ago, Section 5 requires certain covered jurisdictions to obtain preclearance of proposed electoral changes, including districting changes, and it's mainly in the context of redistricting that uh, the issue of preclearance has been most controversial. Now this is, as many scholars, including Dr. Thernstrom, have pointed out, an extraordinary provision uh, meant to address 
an extraordinary problem, namely the exclusion of minorities, specifically African Americans at the time of its enactment, from participation or representation, uh, especially in the South. Um, and most of the most of the places that are still covered, not all of them, but most of them are in the South. So I think the disagreements over whether to keep this um, extraordinary provision as a part of our law hinge on really two issues. One of them is normative, an issue about what the world should look like. The other is descriptive, uh, about what the world is like and uh, perhaps more properly what it would be like without Section 5's preclearance requirement. Um, let me start with a normative disagreement. And I think a, a, a big issue in dispute is um, the degree to which one believes that integrated legislative bodies at the local, state, and national level are an important priority. Um, and let me put it a little more specifically, the degree to which one believes that the federal government ought to have um, a special role in ensuring uh, what, what election law scholars commonly refer to as descriptive representation on these bodies. Um, um, the second issue, the factual one, is the degree to which minority representation, by which I'm here uh, speaking of descriptive representation, the degree to which minority representation is likely to suffer in the absence of Section 5. Are we going to see backsliding? Are we going to see the resegregation of, um, of local, state, or federal legislative bodies? Um, my own view on this is that Section 5 is and continues to be necessary uh, to ensure minority representation, and particularly at the local level. It is really in local politics more than, to my mind, in state or national politics, where I think the Section 5 preclearance process remains vital. Now, the extent to which one agrees with me, I, I think, depends in large measure on the extent to which one believes that racism and racial bias remain um, obstacles to equal political representation. Uh, this in part has to do with the degree of what's called racial polarization, uh, white block voting and the reluctance of whites to vote for min minority candidates exists out there. Um, and there, were th there are actually, I think, three main arguments that are made against the reauthorization of Section 5. I'm going to provide, by the way, what I think to be, uh, I, I guess I'd describe it as a qualified defense of Section 5. I think its reauthorization in its present form is preferable to no reauthorization at all, though if I had my druthers, it would be changed in some important ways. So the three arguments made in opposition, and, and then I think Julie will actually provide the unqualified defense of Section 5 afterwards. Um, the three big arguments made against um, made against Section 5. First of all, times have changed. And I, 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 this, this really goes to the difference that I mentioned earlier about what the world is really like. To what extent does racial bias 
overt or implicit still affect equality of political representation. The second argument is that Section 5 is just too burdensome on states and counties. This is an argument that I reject. Um, I think the, the available evidence we have suggests that it's not really terribly burdensome. If it were, I think more entities would have tried to get out of the preclearance requirements. My friend Spencer Overton has estimated, uh, based on his interviews with people in South Carolina, it costs them about 500 per preclearance request. It may be somewhat more for local government entities since they have fewer of them, but it's not an enormous burden. Now, the third argument against Section 5 is actually one that I agree with to some extent. Um, and that is the argument that the preclearance process as it stands now is open to partisan manipulation. Dr. Thernstrom has argued that such manipulation took place in the 1990s when the Justice Department under the first President Bush um, took aggressive actions to force the creation of majority-minority districts. I tend to think that there are serious problems now with the politicization of the Justice Department as evidenced by its decisions in the Texas redistricting case and the Georgia ID case. Um, these are awfully difficult questions to, to adjudicate because the Department of Justice's decision-making on preclearance is, for the most part, a black box, at least uh, in cases where they grant preclearance. So I do think this is a serious issue. Um, we can talk about what the solutions are, but, but in, in my ideal world, we would re-examine the preclearance process to make decisions to grant preclearance judicially reviewable. Um, I'd also actually like to see state and federal level preclearance decisions transferred from the Department of Justice to a bipartisan agency like the EAC, although it doesn't seem particularly likely that that will happen because nobody really wants that. Um, let me just say, in closing, a word about Section 203, and I trust that Julie can address this in more detail, the language assistance provisions. My support for Section 5 is qualified. My support for Section 203 is absolutely unqualified. This is about core rights of political participation, the ability of people to, to vote and to cast an informed vote. And it's not just about so-called bilingual ballots. It's also about providing oral assistance and consulting with community groups representing language minority communities. Um, if The place where I think it is perhaps most essential is with respect to ballot initiatives. Those of us who live in states with ballot initiatives, and I've lived in two of them, know how complicated they are to read in our own language. Uh, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a lawyer. Um, imagine what it is like for someone whose first language is not English. I also think the costs are actually quite manageable, which is part of the reason why most local officials surveyed actually would like to keep the language assistance provisions. I apologize. I've gone on too long already, and I'll turn it over to Ab and the other panelists. You're quite timely. We're all going to have a problem with length here. Um, and uh, first, I'm really delighted to be here. Uh, second, um, if there's a bomb thrower on this panel, I think that the first prize goes to um, the lady on my on my right here. Um, and I'm an old friend, a dear friend, and I'm really happy to be with her. I'm also happy to be with uh, Dan Takaji. I wrote an email to him yesterday. I um, finally had the time to sit down, or day before yesterday, 
time to sit down and read a few of his uh, recent articles, and I was very struck by the intellectual integrity of them. As he said um, uh, a few moments ago, we're not on the same page, but I think it's very unusual, or I find it very unusual anyway, to find um, serious uh, writers on these issues who um, disagree, with where I am, but are have the kind of intellectual integrity that he does in recognizing the complexity and recognizing the work of of those he is um, is uh, in a, in opposition to in terms of their bottom line. Well, he said, "Look, there are rights of participation and rights of representation." He, what we're talking about here, and that's absolutely correct. And in terms of participation, it is very important to understand that this is a kind of bottom, you know, maybe it's a duh point. We're not talking about disfranchisement uh, anymore. Um, by any reasonable definition of the term, it seems to me. We're talking about the wisdom of legislation, the aim of which is, uh, the aim of which has become uh, maximizing minority office holding through the use of racially gerrymandered districts, which protect uh, white candidates from black and um, Hispanic. I'm sorry, protect black and Hispanic candidates from white competition. In that sense, uh, they are, the Voting Rights Act has become an affirmative action um, statute that is protecting uh, minority candidates from white competition, of course, is what preferential policies in higher education, in contracting, in employment, and so forth do. And we are also, which is a point I can't resist making because uh, I can't, I don't think it can be said often enough, we're talking here about racial sorting, about racial classifications with their long and ugly history in this country. We're talking about making stereotypical assumptions about um, what black and Hispanic voters believe, what their interests are. Uh, uh, assumptions that those are distinctive interests, uh, that we can't talk here about individuals, but about group rights, and on the basis that these are, in effect, um, nations uh, within our nation. And I've got problems with that, obviously. Um, Dan Takaji said, Takaji um, uh, said, what would the world look like and what is the world like? And I think that the second question is absolutely central to this debate. What does the world look like? That is the great dividing point between us on this panel. I see this country as radically altered uh, since, the 19, since 1965. Um, we've been through, in my view, the most remarkable transformation in terms of racial attitudes, in terms of the status of blacks and Hispanics in this country. Um, we are, blacks are moving, in my view, towards becoming another American ethnic group. They're not there yet, but they're moving in that. The trend lines are all in the right direction. And so I celebrate America as the most ethnically and racially tolerant society in the world. Um, all serv international survey data indicates we're not exactly where I'd like to be, but 
Um, again, the trend lines, in my view, are all in the right direction, even when, whether we look at residential segregation, I should say, not use the word, I don't use the word segregation when, anymore when it comes to residential patterns, residential clustering, residential um, patterns, whatever, or employment, or, you know, guess who's coming to dinner in terms of friendships, and so forth. So I think that that is an absolutely central issue before us today. What should the world look like, he asked, are integrated um, legislative bodies a priority? Well, sure, they're a priority, uh, and, but as he noted, the question is who's responsible for getting the racial mix, quote unquote, right, or the racial mix fair uh, by, uh, you know, one definition or another. Uh, my definition is not the same as his. And what he argues in one of his papers is, look, these majority-minority districts that have been created through the process of racial gerrymandering are racially integrated districts. That is, they're not entirely black or entirely Hispanic or entirely minority, a combination of groups. Um, sure, there are whites in them, but as um, one scholar has said, and I agree, uh, the whites are filler. The whole point is to ensure the election of minority officeholders, not minority representatives, because um, you got to make a distinction between the word representative and office holding. Representative, whites can represent black constituents. Black officeholders can represent white constituents. The question is not black or Hispanic representatives, but black or Hispanic officeholders. And so that's the question is, uh, what role should the government uh, be playing? And of course my argument is far from creating integrated districts, far from creating biracial, multiracial coalitions, uh, they are, we are, uh, with these districts separating Americans in a way that is bad for blacks, bad for Hispanics, bad for the fa racial fabric of American society. Nobody is going to benefit in the long run. And I find it, um, morally troubling. Um, the, um, now, on the question of bailout, no, nobody, very few people have, uh, jurisdictions have tried to bail out. First place is very difficult. Second place, you, you're into exactly the situation that Congress is in. You want to be labeled members of Congress. You want to be labeled a racist? I don't think so. These jurisdictions all have, um, that would bail out, all have substantial black and Hispanic and or Hispanic populations. Um, it's not politically in their interest to start to try to bail out. And indeed, the main protection for um, black and Hispanic political interests at this point is not the Voting Rights Act. It's the fact that they are turning out massively to vote. Um, they can't be ignored by any politician, whatever his or her color, this is not 1965, it's 2006, and America has changed. On the partisan manipulation point, um, well, I not only thought there was a lot of partisan manipulation in 
the 1990s, I wrote a book that called Whose Votes Count that came out in 1987, and I had already. And I got into the um, uh, internal memos of the voting section, which I have not been able to do since. Um, I, this is actually a topic I returned to after a 15-year absence, but I tried this year to get back into some of the internal memos and wasn't able to. But I did at that time, and I thought um, a politicized Justice Department, well, of course it's politicized. And the voting, the Civil Rights Division attracts people from the ACLU, from MALDEF, or people on their way to such organizations, and they do have a point of view, and, and the decisions are ideologically driven. I mean, it's an extension of the point that Scalia meant, made in the oral argument in the Perry case that has been handed, the decision has been handed down this morning, the Texas redistricting case, where he said, wow, I'm surprised. You mean there's, in effect, there's politics in redistricting? Yeah, well, there is politics in redistricting, and um, it's been about seven minutes. Okay, I'm going to stop. It was, no, it was just a uh, heads up. Not All a, right, I'm going <laughs> to... Keep going. Uh, uh, keep going. Um, well, I don't want to hog time, obviously. Um, uh, I, I, I lost that sentence. Doesn't matter. Um, let me think what else I really do want to say before I disappear here. Um, I want to talk about the statistical trigger for a second. Well, two th two points here. Look, in 1965, the the preclearance and other provisions that are up for reauthorization were emergency provisions. They were supposed to expire in 1970. They were a response to the emergency of persistent, egregious 15th Amendment violations in one region of the country, which at that time did not look much different in terms of its regime of apartheid than South Africa. Though the South, that South is gone and the emergency is, is over as uh, Rick Hazen has said, a very good scholar on these issues, Bull Connor is dead. He's not on my page either, but I like that, I like that line a lot. Um, it, even by this, the, the trigger for coverage was a combination of voter turnout under 50% and a literacy test. Now, the two parts of it were absolutely um, integral. That is, the low voter turnout, they talked about registration too, but vote turnout is really the operative um, uh, question here. Low voter turnout suggested fraudulent literacy tests. Those who designed the trigger knew exactly which states they wanted to, to cover. They put a 50% mark because they knew it would, it would hit the deep south states. It wasn't arbitrary. They worked backwards and they did hit exactly the jurisdictions that should be hit, that should be, have been hit. By the time you get to 1970, when the Preclearance provision is for the first time um, reauthorized, extended, and they base the reauthor they update the trigger to rely as well on 1968 turnout figures. It made no sense whatsoever. Then, at that point, you brought in 
for instance, three boroughs in New York. New York, blacks have been voting in New York since the passage of the 15th Amendment. There have been a long history of blacks elected to public office in New York. You brought under coverage, and that process continued with further extensions of the Voting Rights Act, um, jurisdictions that did not resemble the Deep South, and I would include Texas in that, in that um, uh, camp. And Look, to update the trigger at this point makes no sense whatsoever. If you want coverage, it's got to be on a different basis. Finally, I do not know why Section 2, which, by the way, I'd throw out also, but that's not on, on, on the table. I don't know why Section 2, uh, which is a permanent provision, and the 14th Amendment combined are not sufficient at this point. Uh, Dan Takashi will argue, well, wait a minute, the burden of proof is on the plaintiffs in Section 2 cases and 14th Amendment cases, where it's on the burden of, the burden of proof is on the jurisdiction. With Section 5, they have to prove a negative. They have to prove that they haven't been discriminating. And of course, where the burden of proof lies is extremely important. Um, so the burden of proof is on plaintiffs. Well, um, I'm going to quote my friend Peter Kirstenau sitting right there a minute. I'm not going to cry in my beer about that. He said that in a different context. I mean, what's wrong with plaintiffs having to prove their case and carrying the burden to do so? I'm going to stop here. If anybody wants to talk about the Perry decision that came down this morning, I'm sure a number of us would be delighted to do so. I have given it a fast read, and I do know the case very well. Thanks, thanks everybody, and thanks to the Federalist Society for putting this forum on. Um, I know it's, um, there's a lot going on in all of our uh, lives around these issues, and for all of you too, but I think this is a really important and critical thing for us to be talking about, and I'm glad to be here to talk about it. And having gone to the University of Chicago for law school, I'm very used to Federalist Society events. So <laughs> thanks for having me. So um, there's so many points. I'm actually glad I didn't prepare too much to come here because I've gotten so much to talk about from Dan and from uh, Dr. Thernstrom. And I hope it's interesting and we can have some Q&A about it. First, uh, we're not talking about disfranchisement, one of the things Dr. Thernstrom said. So I want to start out with a small, a short story. It's a story from, well, you tell me when it's from. It's a town called Kill Michael, Mississippi, 2001. Oh, I already gave the answer away. 2001, Kill Michael, Mississippi. The town had had um, a white majority for a long time, uh, an all-white city council elected at large, meaning all voters vote for all seats on the council. Um, they took a look at the 2000 census data and saw, oh my, it looks like now we're a majority black town. So we're a majority black voting age population town. We have all of our seats elected at large. What do we do? Well, what can we do? What do they think they did? Did they say, let's have an election, let's have competition, let's see who their voters prefer for city council? They didn't do that. They canceled the election. They canceled the election so they could go back and draw districts so they could ensure that the white population would have fair representation on the city council. They canceled the election. That sounds like disfranchisement to me. So, but luckily, Mississippi is covered by Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. So they couldn't just cancel the election. They had to tell DOJ they were canceling the election. 
and they had to get approval from DOJ to cancel the election. And DOJ in 2001, I keep saying 2001 now that I've revealed it because it is operative that it was very recently, <laughs> DOJ said, you know, you can do a lot of things, but you can't cancel elections with a racially motive for, for racial reasons. So that's, and it's not the only example that we have, but it's one that, um, that I think does talk about, is somewhat responsive. When we talk about sort of where, I think it's so clear to everyone that we've made so much progress since 1965. We've made progress in all kinds of areas. But progress is not perfection. Progress doesn't mean you stop. We're, the Voting Rights Act is an integral part of how we were able to make all of this progress. We've had the Voting Rights Act for 40 years. We've had it working for 40 years to help us get to a place now that is still imperfect, though much better than where we used to be. Uh, there's been a lot of conversation about minority office holders and balkanization. There are a couple of, I think, uh, important points that are helpful to me when I think about these issues. One of them is that what we're talking about here in the Voting Rights Act is not protection for elected officials. It's not protection for ensuring a racial or an ethnic makeup of a, of a governing body. It's about ensuring that voters have an opportunity to participate in the electoral process and to elect who they want to elect. There is no racial sorting that goes on um, to determine how voters should be voting and then putting them in groups to make sure they're voting that way or to try and capture how someone else thinks they should vote. There's an analysis about how voters are voting and whether or not their ability to elect their candidates of choice is being, is being realized under the current plan. None of us here can deny, I don't think, that we have a long and sordid history in this country of purposeful discrimination against racial and ethnic minorities in the area of voting. That it has been a, a calculated effort over decades to ensure that minority voters weren't able to voice their, their views in the, at the ballot box. And, this, and a statute that is designed to kind of uh, to kind of turn the tide in the other direction itself can't be categorized as something that is, uh, that is, that is engaging in the racial sorting. The sorting's happening already on the ground. The racially polarized voting that I think Dan um, talked about, which the Supreme Court today, and talk about Texas, in the Supreme Court opinion today said that there is rampant, extreme racially polarized voting in Texas, in southwest Texas. It continues to this day, where the Latino community is regularly not able to have their uh, electoral voices heard because of block voting against them by the Anglo community. So racially polarized voting is a, is a phenomenon that is here today, and racially polarized voting distorts the electoral process. It is kind of this big, ugly distortion that exists all over the uh, parts of the country most impacted by the act, and the act is designed to kind of correct it, to say where we have polarized voting, we have to kind of corrected, meaning we have to recognize it exists and then try and cure it. We can't ignore it and say, well, we have to be race neutral about this when the ground, the facts on the ground are not race neutral. Uh, and there have been a lot of studies on this. I should say, if you want to go, um, the organization that I work for, the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights and our education fund has done 14 reports that look at the state of voting rights in the 14 states most impacted by the Voting Rights Act since 1982. These are not old stories. We have uh, not just anecdotes, not, they're not anecdotes, they're examples of discrimination in the 14 states that continue to this day. Um, so I think if we've, so one thing I think is helpful is if we focus on the voters and what the voters want and what the voters are already doing, both African American, Latino, and white voters, and how we can make the system more fair for all of them. 
On the balkanization point, I also think it's interesting. We hear that, you hear that a lot um, when people talk about redistricting and balkanization. And Dr. Thurston acknowledged that Dan, I guess, in a paper um, talked about how these districts are some of the most, the districts that were designed to afford African Americans and Latinos uh, an opportunity to elect a candidate of choice are very integrated districts. So I actually have numbers on that. So here we go, people who like numbers. In Congress, the average African American, the average percentage African American in the, in the districts where African Americans are in Congress is 50.4. Are all those, are 50% of those white people are all filler? They're all filler, all those white people. And it's interesting that when the debate around racial gerrymandering, when you hear about a 55% black district that's 45% white, a lot of folks want to call that a black district. They want to call that a racial district. But if it's 55% white and 45% black, well, that's an integrated district. Or in, in recent parlance, that's an influence district. Well, why isn't 55, 45 black, white a white influence district? It isn't because folks recognize that where there is polarization, where there's racial polarization, that does it, the, the only meaningful way to have your voice heard is to, make a, is, to, is to have districts that afford you that opportunity purposely. Um, it's interesting if you look at the, the districts of white representatives in Congress, there are people, and there's one person in particular, I don't know why this is, but Harold Rogers from Kentucky. Kentucky has a lot of non-white people in it, doesn't it? Have a lot of non-white people in Kentucky. Um, Harold Rogers' district is 97% white. Is he in a white, he's in a white district? He's just in a district where there are white people. I mean, what do we say about Harold Rogers' district? Or what do we say about the average of, um, of whites in their districts and how are they balkanized or there's balkanized districts. Those just, we take those as sort of business as usual districts when an African American or Latino is being, uh, is having their voices heard and sometimes electing African Americans and Latinos, that's somehow distorting the process. And we're talking about a few other things quickly. Am I getting a note? Oh my goodness, you're kidding me. All oh, right, so let me say a couple of quick things. I'm really sorry. A couple of very quick things. One, just about bailout. Bailout is so not difficult. Uh, the only testimony that has been in the Congress since uh, in this reauthorization process, Jerry Hebert, who has done, uh, is the lawyer who's done 11 bailouts in the state of Virginia, 11 counties in Virginia, says it costs an average of $7,500 to have a jurisdiction bailout. And the only testimony there, there's, a, there's testimony from a guy named Don Wright, who's the general counsel of the North Carolina Board of Elections, who says that bailout is not difficult, that, that, mean that Section 5 is not burdensome, and that jurisdictions often want to stay, and not because they're afraid of the black or the Latino community, they want to stay in, under Section 5, but they find that it's a helpful tool for them to be able to kind of get insurance that they can submit their change to the Department of Justice. DOJ says that doesn't look like it's uh, discriminatory, and they can take it back to the black community and say, you see? Because remember, these are places where there is long-standing institutionalized distrust between communities that resonates to this day. This is, um, um, so, that point. One last point I want to make about updating the trigger. I'm so happy that I, I always like to find common ground with people on panels. I'm so happy that I agree with Dr. Thernstrom that the trigger does not need to be updated. But I agree. I agree. It doesn't need to be updated. It shouldn't be updated. And the reason it shouldn't be updated is, and I will, I will, I will end on this, is that the, at the time, as was pointed out, at the time that the decisions were made about who should be covered by Section 5, turnout and uh, whether or not there was a literacy test as well as turnout, registration and turnout, was sort of like taking the temperature. It was kind of like, where is the fever? The disease is discrimination. 
So updating who is covered based on current turnout numbers is just sort of saying, do we still have a fever? Well, we may not still have, I mean, registration and turnout no longer is a measure of where discrimination happens. It used to be in 65. Dr. Thurston was right. They backed into that number. They were trying to say, this is, a, this is how we can tell where discrimination is. How we can tell where discrimination is today is to look to see where discrimination is. And if for any jurisdiction that can demonstrate that they have not had discrimination for 10 years, they can bail out. That's the standard, 10 years. So I'll leave you with that and hope we have some good questions. Thanks. Thanks, Julie. Well, I, I guess because you didn't address Section 203, you also are going to have common ground with me, and you must have changed your view uh, since you heard me testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee a couple weeks ago. Um, let me begin by saying I'm going to give a little history lesson here, and uh, partly that is because uh, I was present at uh, the creation, as it were, of Section 203 uh, in Eric Snice's uh, long introduction. Uh, he stopped, I think, about 1980, and I actually go back on this issue to 1972 to 1975, at which point I was working on the Democratic side, then the majority side, in the House Judiciary Committee at the very time the 1975 uh, reauthorization was being considered and um, was a, a young junior staffer there and met frequently with one of Julie's predecessors, a man named Clarence Mitchell. I don't know, there aren't probably enough gray beards in this room to remember that name, but Clarence Mitchell was, in fact, the chief lobbyist for the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights for many, many years, uh, a legend in civil rights community. Uh, and I will tell you that at the time that I was working there, there was near unanimity in the civil rights community opposed to the idea of expanding coverage by virtue of creating a bilingual uh, ballot re uh, requirement uh, in Section 203, which then also triggered inclusion on, under some of the other special provisions. Uh, there was uh, opposition to this, not just from the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, but from the U.S. Commission uh, on Civil Rights, which at the time did not have people like uh, Abby Thurston and Peter Kersenow on it, but was headed up by the Reverend Theodore Hesburgh. There was also opposition in the Justice Department by, again, the legendary Assistant, uh, Sec uh, Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights, J. Stanley Pottinger. And uh, the reason for that was something that, again, I hope we do have common ground on on this, uh, on this panel today, and that was that in order to include uh, this uh, new provision, one had to show that there was actual, real discrimination against persons uh, who were being denied the, their right to vote, uh, in this case, on the basis of uh, their language minority status. Now, uh, there was uh, testimony given at the hearings in the House and the Senate, and uh, Joseph Rao, who also at the time, uh, he worked for the UAW, but also was associated with the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, he did try to scour up witnesses that would be the equivalent of uh, Fannie Lou Hamer to come and testify against blatant discrimination, particularly in the state of Texas, uh, but they really weren't able to find much of anything. They did show some people who thought they were being intimidated uh, from voting. But frankly, the reason for that is something that Abby Thurnstrom uh, laid out in her book, and I laid out in my book, Out of the Barrio, was that Hispanics, Mexican-Americans in particular, were, in fact, a uh, very reliable, steady 
part of the Democratic political machine in the state of Texas. At the time that the 1975 amendments took place, there were two sitting U.S. governors uh, who were Mexican-American, Jerry Apodaca of New Mexico, a state which became covered under the special provisions of the act due to the uh, 203 amendments, uh, and the state of Arizona, which at the time had only about a 10% Hispanic population. Raul Castro was the governor there. There was also a United States senator, uh, Senator Joseph Montoya, uh, again elected from New Mexico, and there were five members of Congress. Now, this was in very stark contrast to the state of affairs in 1965 in the Deep South, where there were no elected officials uh, who were black because blacks had systematically been denied the right to vote uh, in, uh, in the Deep South. In Texas alone, there were 700 local elected officials as of 1971 uh, who were Mexican-American. So it was a very, very stark contrast. And for that reason, I think, frankly, 203 ought not to be reauthorized because I think it is blatantly unconstitutional. The Congress of the United States has the authority under the 14th and 15th Amendment uh, to tell states what to do about elections if they can prove intentional discrimination. And in fact, there has never been uh, any substantial evidence of that kind of intentional discrimination uh, under uh, against Hispanics. Uh, it just simply is not comparable to what blacks uh, faced. Now, sort of bringing us forward to today and whether or not uh, the whole question of language and the presence of some people who may not speak English uh, well enough to understand uh, some of the complicated provisions of ballot measures in states like California, uh, I would submit that uh, even though those ballot measures are pr uh, printed in English, and English is my one and only language, uh, I sometimes find them hard uh, to understand. And I would actually argue that uh, that kind of, of uh, language that is in included in those ballot provisions is probably an argument against the government getting involved in doing translations because those translations often are, are not very satisfactory. Uh, so uh, are there a large number of people in the United States unable to uh, vote because of uh, not uh, being able to speak English? Well, I don't think we know the answer to that question, and certainly as the laws trigger um, suggests, we depend on the U.S. Census Bureau to, ask that que uh, to answer that question for us. But what we find is that the Census Bureau um, has decided that people who on the census form claim that they speak English well are counted as language minorities and uh, in need of a bilingual ballot. So I think that uh, the, that uh, definition and the way in which we go about trying to determine how many people there are is, is very faulty. Uh, if you are a naturalized citizen uh, under the age of 50 years of age, you do have to demonstrate uh, English proficiency in order to be naturalized. So obviously, uh, most naturalized citizens have been able to demonstrate at least some proficiency in English. And in terms of U.S.-born uh, uh, Hispanics and others who do not speak English, while there were pockets of such persons uh, in 1975, particularly in my home state of New Mexico, in northern New Mexico, uh, you had uh, small villages where people uh, could trace their ancestry back to the uh, 17th century and in some of those in, uh, places uh, Spanish was still spoken that was a variant of 17th century Spanish. 
uh, and people who were born there and whose families had lived there for hundreds of years were not, in, uh, in fact, English uh, proficient. That is not the case today. There are not such uh, persons today. And in fact, if you look at the language assimilation of Hispanics, one of the arguments I frequently make uh, when debating some of my uh, conservative colleagues on the issue of immigration is that, in fact, Hispanics are learning English. Uh, 80% of third-generation Hispanics speak only one language. Uh, they, like me, are English monolingual. And uh, there just is is not a lot of evidence that there are huge numbers of people out there who are citizens and therefore eligible to vote uh, who need uh, special provisions. However, um, the, uh, if there are persons who have that need, I would submit that there are far less intrusive uh, and far uh, more uh, efficient ways of providing assistance to those persons by allowing them to take translations into the polling uh, booth with them or, or perhaps even allowing in some circumstances people to take uh, an individual uh, in of their choosing. Uh, I'm going to quit there because I see eight minutes has elapsed. Well, thank you. I'm sorry if I was too heavy-handed on the timing, but we have about a half an hour left for a few questions. Um, I think what I'll do is <clears throat> take the moderator's privilege and start the questions off. Uh, one thing that struck me from several of our panelists was the discussion about representation and block voting and how those two interact, whether that, in one view, creates assumptions about how particular racial or language or ethnic minorities uh, think versus whether or not that's just the facts on the ground, that in general whites vote as a block to oust minority candidates and minorities generally vote as a block to put in minority candidates. Uh, and it strikes me that that has problems for both sides uh, to the extent that, in fact, you have block voting that is racially based uh, at some level a reflection of perhaps societal, society's racial discrimination, racial preferences, whatever you call it, um, does that make it uh, denial of the right to vote based on race? Does that make it a governmental policy when the individuals vote according to their race? Does that equate to the government denying individuals the right to vote according to their race? And on the other side, it strikes me that uh, to the extent that groups really are banding together like this as a factual matter, uh, I don't necessarily see the problem with giving group rights of that sort if there is, in fact, block voting and somewhat suppressing individual rights. We do this all the time, uh, most notably with the states, where people are assumed to have a loyalty to their states, much like people are assumed to have a loyalty to their race. Uh, and we give states uh, differential rights based on state loyalties, even though that means that individuals in Rhode Island have much greater voting strength than a, an individual in New York State. So with that question, I'll leave that to the panelists to answer how they will, and then we'll turn to the audience. Ms. Dr. Perstrom. Well, I think the – I'm sorry. I think um, your important uh, sentence there was assuming uh, that there is block voting, which is racially driven. I don't make that assumption. I mean, what the court has been calling block voting and what the attorneys for minority plaintiffs have been calling block voting is simply blacks and whites or Hispanics and whites voting differently. Now, if you're talking about most of the South, if you're talking about Texas, you're talking about a partisan split here. Minorities are Democrats. Most whites are Republicans. So what you're calling racial block voting is not racial. 
It's political. These are political differences, and you cannot separate the two. So I think the Supreme Court, I think the lower courts, I think minority, the lawyers for minority plaintiffs are working with a ridiculous definition of block voting, which doesn't ask why voters are voting as they are. So do I take it from that that you then favor political gerrymanders so that there can be at least political block voting manipulated by the system, even if not racial gerrymandering? No, I just don't. I, what I'm for is the same definition of racial block voting, and I think we would actually see very little of it on the part of whites if there was a, a proper definition. Um, I mean, whites are voting for minority candidates across this nation. That is how you have got a black mayor in Los Angeles with very few blacks in the, in the city. You got David Dinkins in uh, New York, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, is there any doubt that whites will vote for serious black candidates in America today? Um, well, let's, let's see if we get some other views on this, Ms. Fernandez. Yeah, I just have a couple things. First, I think that, um, that racial polarization is more intense in certain parts of the country than in others, and that's an important fact, and it's part of why the uh, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act does not apply everywhere, not only because that, and they're kind of related, that would be unconstitutional in part because it wouldn't be targeted to where the biggest problems are. So we don't have big racial polarization. I mean, Los Angeles is not covered by Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, in part reflective of the fact that they don't have the same kind of history of discrimination. Their polarization numbers are not so big. On this question about, about, um, about politics, it is complicated, but certainly it is true, and I think all the social science bears it out, that racial polarization goes up the lower the closer you get to local elections. So races are more racially polarized at the local level than they are at the state level, than they are at the national level. So why do I say that? What The point of that is that um, when you get down to the ground where polarization is highest, that's when partisanship matters the least. All the, so, I mean, if you look across the country, if you're in a city, I met a sheriff once in South Carolina who told me he used to be a Democrat, now he's a Republican. I mean, it's very typical. I said, well, why are you a Republican now? He said, well, because everybody is. So the whole, the whole, you can't vote in the primary election in his county unless you're a Republican. So the partisanship, so everybody's a Republican in his county. Is there racial polarization in his county? Yes, and the social science bears that out. So the idea that politics somehow trumps um, uh, the racial concerns is, is just, it's not borne out in the statistics on the ground. The last point I want to make is about your question about state action. The 15th Amendment does not have a state action requirement. In fact, the 15th Amendment says that, that, um, that African Americans, that, that race, that African Americans have to have the same right to vote as white Americans do, period, full stop. And then I think that the, this question about whether or not we'd have to find the state's role, I mean, the, the, the reason we have the 15th Amendment, the reason we have the Constitution, is because um, our, we decided that there were certain issues that were so important to the foundation of our democracy that they needed to be... Um, that there needed to be a check on on how these things were sort of handled at the state level and sometimes privately. So I think that this whole idea that sort of private vote decisions collectively somehow because they remain private somehow shouldn't be impacted by um, anti-discrimination measures in the voting context I think is belied by the Constitution itself. I gather though you wouldn't limit that to just African Americans that you no. apply this oh, to all, not. yet the 15th Amendment of course is quite limited. No, it isn't. It, 
Well, no, because it talks about race. Oh, sorry, it talks about race, and race has been interpreted by the courts to include um, ethnicity when it regards when it, it has when it talks about with regard to Latinos, and also, in fact, for and it's interesting. Race is such an interesting. It's a whole other panel, but that the concept of race has evolved. At the time, the Fifteenth Amendment was decided. Lots of groups uh, were thought to be racial groups that are no longer. It kind of gets to uh, to Linda Chavez's point about whether or not African Americans, after two hundred and fifty years, might be close to maybe becoming. Maybe this is. Dr. Thurns may be close to maybe becoming like an ethnic group, which I think itself answers the question about how the state of African Americans in this country. But I think that no, it's been interpreted more broadly than that. In fact, it used to it used to include um, Jews and Italians. Could I just add just a, a brief uh, a note on that? In terms of race and Hispanics, a majority of Hispanics in the United States define themselves as white. Uh, on census uh, forms, when asked to to select a race, they define themselves well, as white because they ha- because they have to. All they can check is white or black or Asian or Native American. So they look well, at they that can, and they, they say, can check other. No, they, they can, can check other. No, I okay, check okay other. they could and check also, other. Right. A Hispanic and not a Hispanic category. No, but that's not a racial category. No, it's, it's an ethnic well, category. It's not racial, but right. still. You Professor, that, you, would you, you like to go to the next question? Why don't we go to questions from the audience? Let's start up front, and. We'll work our way around, I promise. Uh, this is directed to Dan and Julie. You didn't really have an opportunity to address 203 very much, and I'm wondering, yeah, I'm consistent with uh, Congress and proportionality, City of Bernie, what do you consider to be the strongest constitutional arguments in support of 203? It's really a great question, and it's one that's been under-examined. Um, I, I, there isn't common ground on one point that Linda mentioned, which is I actually don't think that you have to show intentional discrimination where Congress is seeking to protect rights of access or participation as opposed to representation. Uh, as, as my friend Rick Pildes puts it, when Congress is acting to protect the right to vote as such, um, I don't think intentional discrimination is required. I say that because there have been cases uh, such as Harper and, of course, Bush versus Gore where the Supreme Court has held the right to vote uh, under the Equal Protection Clause, to be violated, notwithstanding the fact that there was no evidence of race discrimination, much less intentional race discrimination. So I think they're basically getting to the, the meat of your question. There are basically three grounds on which um, Section 203 might be defended, two of which have to do with intentional discrimination, one of which doesn't. The first is that there is, in fact, and has been uh, intentional discrimination against language majorities, um, language minorities, rather. And I think you can introduce some evidence, probably most of it anecdotal, that such discrimination exists. The second is that there is intentional discrimination or has been intentional discrimination in places outside the voting process, most notably education, that requires requires this as a remedial measure. The third is the argument that I just made, which is that Congress has broader authority to protect the right to vote as such than it does to protect against uh, intentional discrimination having to do with vote dilution and therefore that it, Congress ought to be able to protect that right by guaranteeing translated ballot materials and oral assistance to language minorities. Could I just respond on, on the, the last point in terms of the educational discrimination? Uh, one of the problems, again, with the data that's used uh, to determine whether or not you know, there is literacy uh, and the ability to speak uh, English well is that particularly on education levels, uh, the, uh, the 
census uh, statistics that are usually adduced uh, to argue that there is such educational discrimination include large numbers of people who are not citizens and, in fact, were not even educated in the United States. When you see overall education uh, numbers cited for half of all Hispanics not completing high school, uh, et cetera, those numbers uh, always include people who were not born in the United States and were not educated here. They include, in the adult population, half of that population being foreign-born and the overwhelming majority of those having completed whatever schooling they have, usually seven, eight, nine years of schooling uh, abroad, not here in the United States. So again, that complicates this. I mean, if, if the argument is we have to provide these materials because there's been educational discrimination against Mexican-Americans or Puerto Ricans, uh, it would seem to me that you would want to be careful to make sure that you were looking at the educational attainment of persons actually born and educated in the United States, uh, or at least educated here, uh, and um, having become naturalized citizens. And there, 80% of, 86% of uh, second generation uh, Hispanics in the United States graduate from high school, and comparable numbers uh, of immigrants who actually enter U.S. schools uh, also complete their education here, who, who are uh, from Latin America. Do we have more questions? Um, I think over there. Uh, gentleman in the green jacket, I think, had his hand up earlier. May I back up and ask an underlying question here for Mrs. Chavez and Dr. Thernstrom? Does Section 5 guarantee election results, or does it guarantee something else? The the result language is actually in Section 2. But the result, the unacceptable result, the illegal result, is a denial of the opportunity to um, participate in elections and uh, elect the candidate of your choice. So we got, we've got opportunity as the bedrock definition of result. Now, Section 5, and this is, it was deliberate that sex, the Section 2 framers, Section 2 having been um, amended in 1982, it was deliberate that they used the word result instead of effect. And this is often um, uh, confused in public discussion. People say Section 2 has an effects test. It doesn't. It has a results test. And it's different than Section 5. The effects test in Section 5 has a very specific meaning which, however, because the Justice Department has been politicized for so long uh, and because the uh, D.C. District Court, which is the only court open to Section 5, preclearance um, uh, motions, uh, uh, because both the DOJ and the District Court have put their fingers in their ears and, uh, you know, how many troops does the Supreme Court have? But according to the Supreme Court, there is a very specific definition of effects, and it's called the retrogression standard. That is, and it makes sense given um, the the whole structure of Section 5. What the court said is what we are concerned about is backsliding or what they called retrogression because preclearance is to make sure that states that have come to the table with very dirty hands on the part on, on questions of race don't engage in hanky-panky that leaves blacks worse off than they would have been uh, 
uh, had uh, that electoral change not been made. That is, it's, a, it's an, a guarantee that the enfranchising provisions of which are actually in Section 4 stick. It's a prophylactic measure to make sure the basic enfranchising uh, provisions are not undermined. And so the effects test is simply a, um, an anti-backsliding provision. And, you know, it's, it's been said here, look, the um, Section 5, the preclearance provision, only covers those jurisdictions that have a bad history of uh, racist exclusion. Well, aside from the fact that it's 2006, and as I said, Bill Connor is dead, do we include uh, scattered counties and townships in California, New York, um, uh, South Dakota, Michigan, New Hampshire, and elsewhere, aside from the problem of covering Arizona and Texas in their entirety, which were never like the Jim Crow South. Um, Professor Tukaj? If I could just add a brief point, and this, uh, this is actually something on which, uh, at least uh, in part, Abby and I may agree which is this. I don't think that majority-minority districts should be the end-all and be-all for purposes of Section 5 analysis. Um, and, and I am somewhat worried about a concern that Abby mentioned earlier, namely that creating um, African-American or Latino supermajority or, or uh, supermajority districts, let's say, will inhibit the formation of cross-racial coalitions. I, I mean, I, I am somewhat worried about that. To my mind, um, the, the answer to that is that for purposes of Section 5 analysis, we should not only consider majority-minority districts or so-called safe minority districts, but also so-called coalition districts, that is, districts in which African Americans or Latinos may actually compose a minority of the population, but there is evidence of sufficient um, cross-racial voting to, at least in some cases, not necessarily guaranteeing equality of results, uh, but at least in some cases will allow the preferred candidates of African-Americans or Latinos to elect their candidate of choice. So, for example, I actually think for purposes of retrogression, and this might be a point on which I disagree with Julie, I'm not sure, but it should be okay if, um, if, a, if a state were to go from having, let's say, one, one district that was safe minority, where an African-American had 100 percent chance of being elected to two, in which maybe an African-American candidate has a 50 percent chance of being elected to office. Um, so I don't think that the standard ought to be equality of results, at least not for purposes of Section 5. And you really think courts can come up and the Justice Department can, and career, you know, administrators in the Justice Department can come up with legal standards that are... They, they already do it. The standard that Dan has talked about is the standard that, to my knowledge, DOJ has been using since the middle to late 1990s. They, the, I mean... By that, and that is, that's just a fact. Um, it's that not just a fact. The agreement, that I, I agree with Dan on the point, and I think many of us um, in the civil rights community, I think all of us certainly who have been working on the reauthorization of the voting rights community agree that majority minority districts are, are not always the end all and be all. In fact, the end all and be all for us, again, looking at all of this through the lens of what is good for the, what, what is, what minority voters 
um, minority voters do they want to have happen. It's about whether they have an ability to elect a candidate of choice. And sometimes they have that ability to elect 40% in coalition with either white crossover or Latinos or someone else, all kinds of coalition districts. Sometimes they have um, at 45. Sometimes they need 60 in order to have that same opportunity to elect. So if you your eye away from majority minority and put it back on ability to elect, it's not that complicated. It is the standard that they've used in DOJ since the late 1990s, or middle to late 1990s. Very, very quickly, one of the reasons you sometimes have to have these super, super packed districts when, with respect to Hispanics is that when you are packing yeah. in these uh, minorities, uh, Hispanic voters, uh, they're not Hispanic voters. They are persons of Hispanic descent, and again, they include a large number people who are not United States citizens. No. And so you end up you end up in in places like California where uh, in a local council Los Angeles County uh, election a number of years ago it was essentially a rotten borough. You had a borough that was created a, a voting district that was created for the LA Council, uh, LA City Council uh, that was created that had huge numbers of non citizens included in it in which a tiny percentage of the people actually could vote. But the analysis typically, I know at DOJ, their analysis is always based on CPAP. So it's also on citizen voting age population, not on total population. Citizen or, voting age is not the same thing as, I'm sorry, citizen voting citizen age. Citizen voting okay. age population, yeah. More questions? Someone right there. Um, certainly, Daniel and Julie, you could probably agree, I would think, that a place like South Carolina or Atlanta, Georgia, less likely to discriminate on the basis of race than somewhere like Cleveland, Pittsburgh, or Boston. And if that's the case, um, why, what argument is there to not send to five nationwide? I'm assuming that in jurisdictions that are minor, majority minorities, such as Orangeburg, South Carolina, or Atlanta, we're less likely to have racial discrimination based on voting than you wouldn't like Cleveland or Pittsburgh, where I grew up and can tell you all about Boston. Why not extend Section 5? Is there any legitimate well, substantive Yeah, there are a lot of legitimate substantive reasons. I think the first is that Section 5 is not the whole of the Voting Rights Act, as you know. Uh, the Voting Rights Act is permanent. We talked about Section 2. Section 2 is a very, it can be, in, in certain circumstances, a very effective way to combat voting discrimination the way Title VII does, employment discrimination, or the statutes. What Section 5 is about is not about being everything to all people. It was about trying to address a particular kind of problem that was an institutionalized, long-standing, pervasive racial discrimination by states. Look, I don't think I don't think it's a straight-faced argument to say that Louisiana is the same as Wisconsin in terms of history of discrimination and what the what the facts continue to be on the ground. Bill Connor may be dead, but as my friend Lachlan McDonald from the ACU often says, a lot of people are dead. Right? The twelve disciples are dead. You know, lots of people are dead, but they're they res they resonate today in our lives today. And I think that Section five was about curing a particular problem. They saw in these jurisdictions in the South Litigation, affirmative litigation with burdens on plaintiffs was not working to break the back of Jim Crow. It didn't work. They had to have Section 5. You know what? The burden is now on you. Because of who, your history is on you, you have earned the right to have this special protection. Now, if a jurisdiction, if you're telling me that Cobb County 
One of these counties has been free from discrimination for 10 years, and so they should be able to bail out, bail out more power to them. If they show they've been compliant with the Voting Rights Act and have no discrimination, no objection, um, in 10 years, I want them to bail out. It's less work and time for the folks in the voting section of the Civil Rights Division. Just one, one word, free from discrimination in 10 years. Free from discrimination under the standards that have been by the voting section in administering this act. Those are not standards that I would call uh, legitimate uh, in terms of distinguishing between uh, situations of discrimination and um, situations in which, uh, you know, voting section attorneys, paralegal, equal opportunity um, staff uh, think, well, uh, we could make this better. We have only drawn five majority, uh, majority minority districts. They could have a six. It's a discriminatory plate. Yeah, if I could just quickly respond to your question, I think the, the short answer to your question is it would be unconstitutional. It would almost certainly, the Section 5 would drop down as unconstitutional if it were extended nationwide. And, and I think there are good reasons for distinguishing some jurisdictions for others, and they're the ones that Julie mentioned. Some has a, have much stronger evidence of intentional discrimination than others. And I do think that for purposes of pollution goes to denial, um, the Supreme Court is, is going to require a showing of intentional discrimination. Back there, good question. Isn't it true that what the renewal should be focusing on is how the Section 5 covered states yeah. compare to other states that aren't covered today? Yeah. I mean, we're talking about right. a year-old record in, in most of these states. Yeah. You cannot prove that Georgia had a worse record than Wisconsin or, or, or Michigan to today. And we're talking about a 25-year renewal. Any uh, evidence is great, but... How do, how do the covered states compare to non-covered states on hard statistical data as far as access to polls and success in winning elections? I think you – well, I guess we just – we I think disagree about the hard facts because I think that if you look at the voting record in the state of Georgia for the last 25 years vis-a-vis African Americans, you look at it in Wisconsin – I wish I could see, I'm sorry um, – that, um, that you will see difference. And this is not an indictment of Georgia as a whole. As I said, there may be places in Georgia that have not had uh, discrimination, either found by federal courts or the DOJ or the D.C. District Court. If folks don't like DOJ, they can always go to the D.C. District Court to try to get preclearance for their voting changes. And I don't think anybody here is going to say that's a liberal bastion. So, you know, if, if they can demonstrate that they don't have, that they have no voting discrimination, I agree that one of the, a lot of jurisdictions who are not discriminating for them, Section 5 is just not a burden. They just file a piece of paper with DOJ and the letter back in 30 days that says pre-cleared. It's not as if it's some kind of a, of a there, there's just not that much to it. And I understand, I understand the sort of symbolic point, you know, about the South and sort of why is it that we kind of feel like we're still being punished when we feel like we've come a long way. I totally get that. But I think that the, but I think that the, um, I think the answer is that jurisdictions who, who have these, who have said, you know what, this, we've been doing this while and now everything is fine for us, they should just file a piece of paper with the D.C., uh, the, do a declaratory judgment action, cost you $7,500, and you're out. 
But I think this idea of, I mean, Wisconsin has problems, I'm sure. I don't, you know, I'm sure they have problems, but it is different in kind and in scope than what we have seen in our history. Because our history is relevant and it resonates in our history in some places in Louisiana, Georgia, Mississippi, and some other places, including, I have to say, in New York City. If you go to our website, renewthevra.org, we have a report on the state of voting rights in New York, in New York City, and I'll tell you, it's not pretty. That they're being, they're being captured by Section 5 is not some kind of weird fluke. And the same thing is true certainly of the counties in South Dakota and also in California. It is not, it is not a weird fluke. It was real there. Uh, it is a weird fluke. The, <laughs> the turnout in 1968 in a low... org. we have a report on the state of voting rights in New York, in New York City, and I'll tell you, it's not pretty. That they're being, they're being captured by Section 5 is not some kind of weird fluke. And the same thing is true certainly of the counties in South Dakota and also in California. It is not, it is not a weird fluke. It was real there. Uh, it is a weird fluke. The, the turnout in 1968 in a low turnout election dropped a few points in New York City, so it got under the 50% mark, and therefore the city was equated with Mississippi in 1964. That is absolutely absurd. Now, if you, um, if you want, I mean, in 2000, what were the complaints with respect to discrimination? Uh, they were counties in Florida, not covered by the Voting Rights Act in, two, in 2000, I'm sorry. In 2004, Ohio was, you know, complaints about Ohio, not covered by the Voting Rights Act. And your question is absolutely right. Let's look at the participation figures and the, and the uh, black office holding figures and Hispanic office holding figures in covered and non-covered jurisdictions. You look at Georgia, the figures look great. Now, and by the way, if you get on the American Enterprise Institute website, there are uh, state by, some state-by-state state studies that are useful here. Um, but in terms of the level of minority officeholders, candidates cannot win when they don't run. And if black and Latino candidates think they need safe minority districts in which to run, because that is the message that is being delivered by the civil rights groups, all those Bad racist whites are never going to vote for you. You got to run in safe, gerrymandered districts in order to win. Then they're not going to run, and they don't run frequently enough, putting together biracial and multiracial coalitions. We have time for one more question, Hans. I think the honor is yours. Uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a second to uh, Dan Dokaji, which probably is appropriate since I think you probably think I am the devil from so the posts <laughs> on your website. Just I, I just met you this afternoon. I've heard other people say it, but... <laughs> My question is, without getting into the thorny details of Section 2 law, which is very complex, yeah. Yeah. my question is, how do you reconcile two, two things in, in uh, Section 2 law? And that is, under the Thornburg case, mm -hmm. in order to prove a case, two of the main of the three factors you have to prove is, one, mm -hmm. that the minority voters you're representing vote as a racial block. Mm -hmm. And you also then have to prove that the majority voters, usually white voters, also vote as a racial block to block mm -hmm. the racial block of the minority voters. In other words, 
to prove your case, uh, in Section 2, you are punishing one group of voters, white voters, for engaging in racial block voting, but you are rewarding another group of voters, minority voters, for engaging in racial block voting. I, I guess I would differ with you, not so much in your description of the jingles factors for proving a Section 2 case, but in your characterization of them as punishing and rewarding. What those two factors are designed to measure is the existence of racially polarized voting. And another requirement for making out a Section 2 case, as you know, is, of course, compactness, uh, which uh, came out this morning. I'll mention that the Texas – or the, the, the Supreme Court found all three factors to have been shown in the Texas redistricting case that came out this morning. So I guess I, I just think that punishing and rewarding is the wrong way of talking about it. Um, I, I guess I, 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 I do think, as I said before, majority minority districts ought not be the bend, end all and be all for purposes of Section 5 analysis. I don't think they should be the end all and be all for purposes of Section 2 analysis either. But, you know, I actually have always seen the Jingles test as putting a limit on Section 2 to avoid making it a mandate for proportional representation. Uh, without those limitations, Section 2 could be read to require something along those lines conceivably. Uh, by imposing those limitations, you prevent Section 2 from being read as a mandate for proportional representation. And, and I think generally speaking, they're well-founded, although we might uh, there might be some room for tinkering with them, given that, as I said, majority-minority districts shouldn't be the end-all and be-all. Well, I think that's all the time we have. Thank you all for coming. I'd like to thank the panelists for appearing today. Thank you. I'd also like to thank all the folks at the Federal Society who put this together and made it possible. Uh, thank you all. That's all. Good afternoon.